0: taking it to a
3: do-it-yourself level. hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bzd.orgau and 3cr.org.au or whatever podcasting app you choose to use and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at BZD My name' is Matt Grantham and uh, joining me today is Anthony Daniel. how are you Anthony? I'm well mate how are you? Very good and uh, and who have we got with us today?
4: Today, we'll be speaking to GreenSync, a Melbourne-based startup using software and data analytics to both stabilize and allow higher penetrations of renewable energy onto the grid. They recently won the GE Ecomagination. Is that how we say it? Ecomagination? Yeah, Ecomagination. And we are joined by the, <laughs> that's the voice you heard was uh, Phil Blythe, <laughs> who is their managing director, and Kate O'Carroll. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks very much. We're in the studio and we're sharing microphones, so we'll struggle through. We always ask the first question about you personally. And, you know, all of these stories are personal stories. And we're interested in how you got to where you are and how you, in your case, Phil, started the organisation and how the idea came about.
2: Yeah, it, it is an interesting thing to look back on after six years and back to a time when it was just the germ of an idea and really nothing concrete. Really, it came from the idea of trying to do something about the shift in energy from a coal-based economy and in, in towards renewables. But that was about the extent of it when I started and what I really knew. I mean, I've been doing tech startups for 15 years, so this was just another one, but it actually had a, more of a grander purpose but not much detail. So and here we are, 6 years down the track. We're now working with most of the utilities, probably you know over 50% of the utilities around the country solving real problems, working with renewables and helping integrate more renewables into the grid and coming up against new and, and challenging problems around what happens when you actually start pushing the the grid to new limits. So in that history It's been really a development over time with the end goal of understanding where we had to get to and problem solving and hiring people like Kate, who's who's with us today, Uh, our engineering team, technology teams, really sort of clubbing a whole multidisciplinary group of people together to understand how we actually solve some of these complex integration problems. Some of those
4: um, early punk bands in the UK, like, they didn't know how to play their instruments and then they became big deals. So, so you're true. very similar to the startup story from what I can gather. Before we get into your business itself and your place in it, we want to speak a bit about how these things are all integrating. And there was a great article in Renew Economy this week that spoke about the death of base load and how there are some people who are pretty significant in the industry saying, it was really just a concept that was necessary and convenient for the fossil fuel world but doesn't necessarily fit in this world. Can you tell us how and why this concept of baseload is is less applicable today than it was say 20,
2: 10 20 years ago? I, I potentially wouldn't necessarily agree with the, the fact that you know baseload is dead and you know okay. we're, we're in a new genre. I think the inevitability of COP21 and and where we're going as a planet means that even the large utilities now are writing off these assets and saying that they're no longer going to be part of the future. That's the reality, right, is that the globe is is heading on a course where they know that the mix of fossil fuel versus renewables will change. Now, actually, it's much harder to manage a grid that's made up of renewables. It's much, much harder. Uh, Baseload's the simplest concept ever, right? You just switch on the coal generator, shove coal into it and just keep it going all day and night and don't turn it on or off. That's pretty easy compared to a whole bunch of renewables that some go when the wind blows, some go when the sun shines, and a whole bunch of little mini storage things that are pushing and pulling to make things balance out. I mean, it's a much, much more complicated problem. But it's the problem that we have to actually contend with as we move to a high-penetration renewable economy. So you have that situation where in the past
4: the demand may have fluctuated, but at least the supply was pretty constant, so you could plan around that. We're now in a world where both are going to be fluctuating, so you need to plan to be able to to meet those.
2: That's uh, right, yeah. And it's just much more volatile. So it takes a bit of a different approach, and certainly... People talk about disruption and in the industry, and is, has a technology company coming along and disrupted the energy industry? No, actually, it's, it's been disrupted by renewables. I mean, solar specifically, and that's forcing a transition. And companies like ourselves are, are we're really trying to assist utilities in, in managing that transformation. It's a centralized energy system today, and in literally even within ten years. It has to be major shift has to occur to uh, enable people to be controlling things at at the edge of the grid at a at, in a sort of distributed capacity as opposed you you've spoken about
4: the fact that yeah it wasn't technology it was renewables, but have you ever done the thought experiment on how renewables could potentially be brought into the grid without these information technologies that we've that have developed over the past couple of decades?
2: Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. The smart grid concept, so the golden fallacy, has been around for about 10 or 15 years. There was a multi billion dollar project rolled out in Victoria with smart meters, which had the brand smart grid. Unfortunately, there's none of the smarts came with it. It was just a bunch of meters rolled out. What we're really facing now is we've actually got to use that information and that whole digital world you mentioned to control things in a much more fine-grained way to actually realise a shift in mm. allowing renewables in.
3: And Phil, just sort of touching on the green GreenSync product that you guys are using, we've got obviously a lot to cover in this interview, but could you briefly sort of give us a description of what that product is and the value that it brings to the grid?
2: Yeah, for sure. Look, in a very simplistic way, think about it as a technology platform that is essentially switching a whole bunch of distributed resources on and off to help balance out the peaks within the grid. So if you use your infrastructure more efficiently. You're essentially, you're using the sort of the same amount of, of energy all the time. If you have a very peaky use of infrastructure, it sits around idle most of the time, and you have this large and very expensive infrastructure you use for very few hours in the year. So our objective is to get rid of those peaks and to use any resources that we can to remove those peaks, which we call constraints within the grid system. Now, to give you some idea, $300 billion is spent annually in electricity infrastructure. That's just the poles and wires. If you are able to s- reduce some of that expenditure by utilising those assets better, there's a massive business case that can start shifting that investment towards distributed resources. And by that, we mean battery storage systems, solar systems. It could even be a smart pump. It doesn't. It could be a thermal storage unit. It doesn't have to be an electrical battery. That is going to be part of the new way to balance energy needs at a very much localized level.
3: And of course, Phil, that is a big problem in Australia, obviously. We've interviewed Ian McLeod and a number of other people talking about how people have just been loading air conditioners onto the system over the years, and that we've got this residential peak that we've got to meet towards the evening. You mentioned earlier on about this issue of you working with some of the retailers. What would be the best fit for your product in terms of, it's obviously got, it can potentially do a few things, but is it more biased towards a retailer, a poles and wires company, or is it something that maybe
2: gives value to the to the home user? or? an industrial user. To actually solve the problem, you need to look at pretty much the whole energy supply chain. However, that said, our focus has certainly been on the poles and wires, the distribution part of the the infrastructure. And that's where we've gained the most traction. And, And really, that's where you might have seen in the media many of the reasons why energy prices have been rising was years ago blamed on the carbon price. But in fact, the underlying cause of energy cost rising was the rising infrastructure used to, to distribute energy. Now, essentially in Australia, that's been a, a huge contention. And we have been working with many utilities across the country now to essentially defer some of those expense investments, you know, $20, 50, $30, $50 million dollars 30 50000000 dollars and push them out and say, well, we don't need that this year. Maybe we'll need it in three years. What can we do in the meantime to support the infrastructure in a different way without writing those big checks? Now, if you look forward 10, 20 years, and you're thinking about making a a $50 million investment in infrastructure, you'd have to think twice. You'd have to question, is that a good investment decision in this current climate, in a climate where we're forecasting increased penetration of solar, increased penetration of batteries, does it make sense to invest in the traditional infrastructure? We're driving that question into the, the minds of the utilities in Australia. And interestingly, Australia is almost at the forefront of this
3: globally. And Phil, we've had people from Reposit and, and Sunverge on this show, and I'm just interested to sort of dissect, as I said, the value chain that, that gets put forward here, and you've mentioned the distributors there. Is there still some value to a retailer? How does that value proposition get broken down? Yeah,
2: yeah. look, without yeah. getting without too, g- yeah, too, too, com- too, too complex. I mean, look, battery storage is part of the things that we deal with and we're doing a number of projects. Kate will probably be able to elaborate, but probably over 50% of our projects involve battery storage today, where a year ago they didn't. Right. But we're focused on solving the problem, which is an infrastructure investment. That's where the money starts to flow from, right? So we're trying to prevent unnecessary spend on that traditional infrastructure so that we can look to guide investment into these other types of resources. So battery storage forms part of the solution, your repurts, your sunbird. Yep. Now with retailers there is also some value to those same assets in the energy in the wholesale markets, particularly in the generation side, which is rather than running a peaker plant Uh, a gas peaker plant for a period which is quite expensive to run and in fact to build a new one why not use these same resources that you're putting in place to essentially save on some of the generation infrastructure that you would otherwise spend that money on
4: but i mean i just wanted to come in there and say a lot of advantage there for the generator that we can see but one of the issues that we've discussed on this show in terms of the incentives that exist for the distributor where they effectively lock in their profit by spending on infrastructure. Mm. So if you come to them and say, you won't have to spend on infrastructure, you're effectively saying, well, you're not going to make any profit. So how do you deal with the politics inside these distributors that actually want to spend more money? Because that's how they make money, by convincing government to, to give them all
2: this money to build more poles and wires. Yeah, and, that, and that's a really interesting thing to look through the history since we began. And when we started talking to utilities about this, You mentioned Ian McLeod, and Ergon was one of our first customers up in Queensland, but nobody else would want to answer our phone calls. It was pretty much business as usual. Hey, you guys are just a blip on the radar, and thanks very much, but no thanks. And to today, where this is now a core part of pretty much most utilities' forward-facing strategies and how to deal with battery storage, how to deal deal with these problems. But probably the the big inflection that... um, Anthony, that you that you mentioned, is the fact that the regulatory environment now has matured to the point where it realises that they have to have a mechanism to promote the, this industry. So in fact, there's now regulatory requirements that they go out to tender on large investments, and they need to evaluate the, the cost-benefit trade-off of investing in traditional infrastructure versus investing in this new type of infrastructure. And that's where we're being successful now in the market. That's
4: interesting to say. Well, we're on the Beyond Zero show and we're speaking to two guys from GreenSync. And I I think this might be the great opportunity to bring you into the discussion, Kate, because we haven't heard from you yet. And I'll ask you the same question that, that we asked Phil early on and just about your own personal history and how you found yourself in this industry.
1: Yeah. So I actually studied architecture and environmental sustainable design. And I came here to Melbourne seven years ago, decided I didn't like working as an architect very much. Um, so moved into the project management space and kind of transitioned into energy, working on the design for very large transmission and distribution companies, so two 20 yards, 66 yards, 22 lines, DIC battery cubicles. And probably two years ago now, three years ago, I did as a comment at GreenSync, helping them deliver their first kind of network support demand program for Ausgrid up in New South Wales. And then they invited me to come back and join them about two years ago. So yeah, it's my background.
4: Fantastic. And maybe we can transition and talk about a project you're working on in the northern suburbs in a microgrid project, a virtual microgrid. Can you first maybe tell us what a microgrid is for those of us who don't know?
1: Yeah. So essentially, customers are taking back control and setting up their own private distribution networks to register connection charges. And within that as well, they can have distributed energy resources. So they can enable renewables, storage, embedded generation, and basically, it's about optimally balancing the load to ensure lowest cost of electricity for the network owner and operator.
4: Do they sit completely apart from the rest of the grid or, are they, or are, do they still have a connection of some kind?
1: They can do, but mostly they're grid connected. So you, you do get microgrids that can act off-grid effectively, but right. what the projects that we encounter do tend to have a grid connection but can act off-grid as well, if, if required to. Okay. So, for example communities that maybe are at the end of a long radio line and car hits a pool they get a blackout for two days or something like that they might have to act independently but there will still be that grid restore at some point
3: okay yeah. great thank you and and Kate uh, Arena who are one of the funders of this project said they were keen to explore the logistical regulatory and financial challenges uh, in adopting microgrids in existing suburbs so uh, given that the project you're involved in let's first start off with the logistical
1: Okay. So basically, this is the microgrid with Moreland Energy Foundation. The logistical aspects are it's new technology. So we're having to liaise with hardware manufacturers. We're building the tech from the ground up ourselves. And we're doing a lot of research and analysis on how that the penetration was in the market itself. Basically, a lot of DBS work off kind of solar penetration or renewable penetration of about thirty percent, and so when we look at penetration that is a lot higher than that, and there's over voltage, what will that actually do to infrastructure? So those are the kind of logistical challenges that we're facing and we're working through.
4: And some of the regulatory stuff, like how do you, in a regulatory sense, effectively disconnect this group of of, of the community from the from the wider grid?
1: I was at um. A woman in power breakfast not so long ago with someone from the AER who was talking about ring fencing and what mini grids and micro grids and virtual things like that might actually come up against and what utilities working on that, how they could work behind the meter to assist their own infrastructure. So that was really eye-opening. But at the minute, no kind of standards or regulatory framework exists as such and it's being put together. So, I mean, that's something that we're working through as well with the utilities at this point in time.
4: So you effectively want to productionise what you're doing here, like something that is being done here is very specific, but something that could actually be rerun time and time again in other contexts.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think Australia has this space, as Kate has pointed out, I think there's probably on the horizon a regulatory change ahead. And I think they are going to probably look at regulating these local networks that that we are building today without any specific license. If you take the UK for for instance there to run these networks there is an independent distribution license you need to attain before actually undertaking these and operating these facilities. So look it's early days in Australia and I think the regulatory landscape will need to keep up as particularly around billing and something we don't do is we don't bill customers but right now if you go and buy some apartments in a building you can find yourself paying your bills to the building operator, not a retailer. And that's the thing that I think the regulators are probably going to grab hold of. We're a layer underneath, which is how do we make sure the building has energy as, as often as possible? And usually people aren't trying to regulate us. Fair enough, but
3: but I would have thought phil there's all this movement at the moment. I know we've seen with some certainly with some new suburbs there's huge amounts of money that you have to pay to connect yourself to the grid, and mm. a lot of newer developments are looking at well, how do we just put a sort of a thin wire in there, reduce that cost. But at the moment, the regulatory framework doesn't really recognise that. But to a point, how do you see, we've seen this with you know companies like Uber who are using software to disrupt transport, how do you see this regulatory framework evolving in the energy sector and how would you like to see it evolve going forward to encourage more of this distribution?
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the barrier that you talk about actually isn't regulatory. I think the financial incentive. If let's say you're a a new shopping centre and you need to connect to the grid, it might cost you several million dollars to do that. The burden is on you as a, you know, if you're paying for it, you know, let's say it's the, the shopping centre who's paying for it, the burden is on on that particular client to figure out what's the lowest way to, to solve that problem. You know, how do I minimise the infrastructure investment? Now, in that sense, you can apply the same technologies that we use and work for the customer. The flip side, imagine now you're the utility and you've got to basically build the same bit of infrastructure. The utilities, given it's over a certain price, are now regulated by the AER, the the government regulator in Australia, to go out to tender. If, to solve that problem, it costs over a certain $5 million. They need to now go and find alternative solutions to the ones that they proposed. So actually the regular environment in Australia now is actually there. It's it's quite immature. It's only quite, it's really quite new, but it's probably something that there's not too many proponents who understand it because it's quite complicated. So I think really what we're going to see over the next few years is a growth in appreciation of really who pays for what and how can you minimise the cost rather than just investing it, ploughing it in traditional infrastructure?
4: I'm hearing all this stuff and there must be a lot of stakeholder management that you guys do. I mean, I know that's <laughs> a term that gets bandied around a lot, but you've got a new – somebody wants to start a open a shopping centre, somebody who's obviously the grid, and you're having to balance these these various incentives – How deep do you go, Kate, when you're planning something like this? I can imagine in a shopping centre, okay, there's guys that just need lights and air conditioning. Mm -hmm. But then there may be some places that are just using ridiculous amounts of energy. They may want to use gas. And how deep do you get in thinking about the demand profile and the demand volume in solving these problems and then how do you then communicate that back to all the stakeholders and and make good decisions?
1: Yeah, so we actually look at previous electrical consumption data put it into our software product, analyse it against weather data. We have electrical engineering audits. We get our electrical engineers out in sight. We interrogate all the infrastructure and assets. We speak to the facilities managers. And quite often we actually, well, we monitor and operate and automate assets in response to constraints or peak demand or high prices on the market. So we learn a lot about the infrastructure and consistently we're forever learning on site effectively we go into quite a lot of detail and we're consistently learning about new facilities so some of our other projects we've got some mini grids in kind of alpine locations we've got some five mini grid projects that we're embarking on here in victoria each and every one you learn something new so
4: and what is the difference between a mini grid and a micro grid
1: <laughs> it's effectively the same. I think it's just my terminology. I'm swapping them.
4: In. <laughs> I, think, I think iPod Mini, and iPod Nano. I think that's <laughs> just like something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, I mean, we are we are getting close to the interview. Our interviews always go very quickly on this show. And Matt, did you have something you wanted to take to the interview um, yeah, next? Yeah,
3: I was just curious to know, sort of, obviously you guys have got this product that's got a sort of a tremendously flexible ability. How do you see the effect of, of what will happen with the increasing electrification of things like uh, electric vehicles and the shift away from gas? What do you see this doing to the natural supply and demand of the overall system? More mm. complexity, obviously. Well, but, <laughs> Yeah. yeah <look>. But, but <laughs> yeah. does that play to your advantage Phil? Like does, it, does the increased complexity help an organisation? Oh, of course it does, doesn't well, yeah. it? I mean, that's that's what you
2: guys are about. Yeah, I guess so. But I guess we're not really about just creating complexity for the sake of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, we like to think of the fact, look, all the trends point towards increased volatility and complexity. I mean, that's probably yeah. the key thing. And it, we're trying to manage that complexity. So for instance, we're working on EV projects at the moment, all parts where it gets complex, where you've got new load point loads coming onto the grid in time slots that typically it previously wasn't there so you know electric vehicle charging overnight right it's going to create its own problems particularly the base load. for instance uh gas gas generators weren't ever running overnight but if you had all evs suddenly starting to charge at 2 a.m you're going to need to call on a gas speaker. right? and so there's things that are just going to occur in the the industry that previously just weren't weren't there so all of those trends, you know, our view is that we're, as Kate pointed out, every time we do a project, we learn something new. We're trying to be across all of the different archetypes, if you like, of the things that are going to change the energy industry over the next 10 years. You know, that's a long enough horizon for us. And to be able to integrate those and make them part of a more connected and communicative system where the, the consumers are playing an equal role as generators and consumers of energy and not just the receivers. And when you say that learning, how does that
4: manifest? Is it just, oh, this is how we do projects, this is the kind of profile of the project, but software and and those kinds of approaches are about effectively putting intelligence into practice and effectively putting what you've learned and productionizing it as we spoke about earlier so how do you learn things that you do when you implement a project but also how do you actually then feed things into into software for, for, for future projects
2: yeah everything in this day and age is software we have hardware products but increasingly the demands on it is for them to act as a piece of software at the end of a, the end of our infrastructure that runs locally we have essentially a cloud-based infrastructure that we run out of multiple data centers we've just set up an office in Singapore we have a data you know data center in each you know jurisdiction we go to and that intellectual property or that knowledge essentially is incarnated in in algorithms in different strategies control strategies in the way that we control different types of resources to solve different types of problems and like a problem could be a fault in a, in the in the grid infrastructure or an overcapacity. So all of that does get essentially productionalized, if you like, in, into software. And that's what we licence out to the next utility and the next customer that comes along.
3: And Phil, before we wrap things up, can I ask, are you biasing that sort of control more towards making it automated or are you looking at things where a consumer of the future may be able to recognise that they'll be home later tonight and they want the, the house nice and warm and will be able to flick on their reverse cycle air conditioner? Are you biasing it towards an automated solution
2: or will you be giving consumers control as well? Mm. Look, there is a balance, but look, certainly my history and experience in, in the behavioural sciences leads me to believe that people are certainly engaged in energy efficiency and, and cost minimization around their energy and be focused on it for a period of time, but they lose interest. So while you have their attention, you need to f- find a way to make it permanent. And automation is the best way... To make sure that something gets up, has longevity, right. so so I think the answer is both. But at the end of the day, what we need to, to have is an indis, is a an, a renewable energy system that is automated and that, that happens without us needing to focus on it day by day. Yeah. So having the consumer make the big decisions, um, in
4: terms of what they in the car they have, the heating they have, and the kinds of setup they do. But then once they've done that, that's right. Set and forget. Absolutely.
3: Uh, thank you very much, uh, Phil. That's been a very insightful, and Kate, of course. Um, we're uh, you were on the Beyond Zero show, and uh, we've been speaking to Greensync, uh, who are a Melbourne-based startup. We'd like everyone to keep uh, listening in the future, and they can get in
4: contact with us at bze.org.au And I'll hand you over to Anthony to wrap things up. You want to find out more about us on Twitter? Visit us at the BZD Tech Show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. My name is Anthony. I'm Matt Grantham.
0: Bye bye. It's not a product; it's a technology. It's an education challenge.
4: A regenerative suspension.
0: There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that.
2: You've got something that's transformational.
0: Solar window in a can.
2: Beyond Zero.
3: Global warming science, solutions and action.
0: Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. I wrote the first book about climate change, way back in 1989 when I was a young man in my 20s. Now I'm in my 50s, so I've spent my life watching our political system try to cope with the biggest challenge humans have ever faced. So far, they've failed. I used to think that was about some failure of human psychology or our love of the status quo or something like that, but I've changed my mind. I think most people, faced with the spreading plague of drought and flood and failed harvest, are ready to take action. The problem is the fossil fuel industry. It's the most profitable enterprise in the history of the earth. Exxon makes more money each year than any company in the history of money. And much of that profit is based on a simple fact. Alone among industries, it doesn't have to clean up after itself. We let coal and gas and oil barons use the atmosphere as an open sewer into which to dump carbon, their main waste product, for free. That's a sweetheart deal. Imagine you owned a restaurant, and the city let you shovel your waste into the center of the street each night instead of paying for it to be carted away. You'd make more profit too. But soon the streets would be overrun with toxins and trash. Well, that's what's going on in our atmosphere right now. Every sensible economist has said that we should force the fossil fuel industry to pay for the damage carbon creates, but it hasn't happened because this industry of polluters is able to pervert our democracy with endless campaign contributions and lobbying money. I mean, our politicians should be forced to wear decals on their suits like NASCAR drivers. And here's the thing, we're not the radicals. We want a world a little bit like the one we were born into. Oil companies are the radical ones. They're willing to alter the chemical composition of the atmosphere in order to make more money. They've already run the carbon level in the atmosphere well past the safe line, 350 parts per million. Now they're trying for a world that, uh, well, it'll jeopardize the future of most living things. Does that seem right to you? So this is our challenge for the years ahead. If we can break their power, then the planet has a future. I don't know that we can They are the ones with all the money. So we need to find other currencies, like passion, spirit, creativity. Sometimes we're gonna have to put our bodies on the line and get arrested. It's the fight of our time, maybe the fight of all time. And we should all be honored to be a small part of it. Help ensure that our planet is protected for all future generations. Go to 350.org and join the fight today.